This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Her name means Kal, which is time. She includes everything, life and death. She includes hope and hopelessness. She's light and she's dark. There is no part of our human lives that are excluded from her adoration. Anything that we, that we want to cut away, she says, that too is my child. She's so whole. She's so complete. She's that terrifying. She's the fullness of the divine. She's everything the divine in our typical Western story is not supposed to be. Look at her. She's dark. She's dirty. She's angry. She's hungry. She's naked. She's naked. She, she's cutting off heads. Why is she cutting off heads? She's cutting off heads because only the heart can see rightly. And it is time for us to speak from the heart, to rise from the heart, to cut off the head which has been leading us in this direction of madness. To see, to see truly. Okay, and she is not just angry and ugly, she is furious because her world is almost destroyed. You see, Durga, which is the divine feminine in the Hindu tradition, she's beautiful. She's dressed in red and in pink, and she's riding in on a, on a tiger, not unlike the marches of women. Can you see the, the parallels, right? We're riding in on Pussy Riot. We are, we are all in pink and red. So she rides in, there's Shiva and Durga, and they're fighting this battle against the demons of ego, against the demons of greed, against the demons of separation. And they're powerful, however, they begin to understand that with every time they wound a great demon, with every drop of blood, a thousand more demons emerge. And anyone who knows a um, malignant narcissist might know something about that. Yes. So, and they are realizing, they are realizing that they are losing because every time it appears they're winning, more demons arise. And so in the last hour, and make no mistake, we are in the late, late hour now. 
from within Durga, a deeper, more fierce form of the divine feminine rises from her head, and that is Kali, and that is the Dark Mother, and that is the force of sacred activism, of broken-hearted, tender-hearted, fierce motherhood, from which we too must rise. And she says, no, not this time, not my children, and she saves the world. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. That was Vera de Chalambert talking about the great goddess Kali. Today, we're going to hear more about Kali and the divine feminine and Holy Darkness from Vera de Chalambert. Vera is a Harvard-educated scholar of comparative religion and a spiritual storyteller, and she teaches and writes about mindfulness in the modern world and the divine feminine. After Donald Trump was elected, she wrote a brilliant essay titled Kali Takes America, which went viral about a year and a half ago. And I highly recommend reading it. Just do a search for Kali Takes America. And then later in the show, we're going to hear an interview with social justice activist and Goddard alum, Karen Koskoff. But first, here's Vera de Chalambert. Hi. My head is kind of cut off. My body is shaking, and uh, I don't really know what I'm going to be speaking to you about anymore, but Ralph Waldo Emerson says that only to the degree that we are unsettled is there any hope for us. So maybe, maybe there's a little bit of hope for me still. Oh, so before I forget, Umani invited us all to be a holy mess. I am a holy mess. So if I don't remember what this talk is about, it's about the importance of darkness and crisis and difficulty in the spiritual process. We hear a lot about enlightenment. I don't know very much about enlightenment at all. What I know of the divine has more to do with heartbreak and yearning and sometimes confusion. But I would like to speak about endarkenment and the power of that and the teachings that we can learn from darkness in the form of the dark feminine that we can find in all of the world's great wisdom lineages. I wanted to start the way Alan Watts always started his talks on Kali. And he started with a story that said, that an astronaut went up all the way far, far into space to meet God, and he comes back and he says, she's black. (laughs) Referring, supposedly, to the darkness of space, the womb-like darkness of space, which, which is evidently feminine. And actually, darkness and the feminine have a really deep relationship. I mean, we think of feminine as maybe light and, 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 and loving, and it is. 
But the full feminine is the dark feminine. It has this receptive quality of darkness, right? Which takes everything in, which holds everything in space. And I, I believe in our, in our psychological lives, in our spiritual lives, the womb, the womb is dark. And we're conceived in this darkness, in this protective, holy space of the womb and the yoni. It's, it's dark. And the ways in which we make love include all these dark, messy, mushy places. You know, we have to go into the darkness to become intimate with each other. And the earth, the earth is also dark, right? And in order for anything to grow, it has to be planted into darkness. And the seed which is planted into darkness has to kind of turn inside out, fall completely apart. It's not a lovely process. It's a messy f***ing process. And, and, and if you don't know what's going to happen, you're probably going to be certain that the seed has just perished, right? Because it fall, fell apart and got destroyed. But really, it is only being planted so that the transfiguration can happen and life could grow. And so this feminine quality of darkness, which which we see in the world's great lineages, seems to be this kind of initiatory power into the spiritual life. It's the quality that initiates and transfigures the soul. So I wanted to start actually with a story from the Buddhist tradition. And incredibly, the Buddha, after having gone through all of the, all of the initiatic processes that it takes to become enlightened is on the brink of awakening and then encounters his dark night of the soul. So he has now achieved enlightenment and has now to take his seat of awakening under the Bodhi tree. And then the demon Mara, this great demon, appears And, I mean, we can speak about demons or we can speak about the unintegrated parts of ourselves, right? So this demon Mara appears and he first tries to seduce Buddha with his, like, sexy daughters. The Buddha says thanks, but no thanks. And then a great army of demons he reproduces. He can reproduce. He produces a great army of demons. And he says, Buddha, you are not the first to be awakened. I, I have done all the spiritual practices. I will take the seat under the body tree. And I have an entire army to affirm my awakening. And in the Buddhist tradition, it is very important that someone affirms our awakening. And so the entire army of demons roar, yes, Mara, we affirm your awakening. And Mara says, and you, Buddha, who do you have to speak for you? And Buddha looks around, and evidently there's no one to speak for him, because there's only him. And so he reaches down and he touches the earth the dark earth, and the earth herself roars, I bear witness to your awakening. And with that statement, the army of demons disappears, and the Buddha takes his seed under the Bodhi tree. And I love that so much, because what we have here is this this kind of teaching about not only we're so obsessed with transcendence, right? 
but, but this teaching is not only about the importance of the journey up towards the transcendent, but also the journey down, down into like the mud, the mush, the earth, embodiment, right? It's about embodying the insights that we have received in our, in our awakening journey. And I really love that. And so the dark night of the soul, or it's called the dark night of the soul in the Christian tradition, but it is a universal concept which speaks about the importance of spiritual maturation, which cannot happen without crisis, which cannot happen without difficulty. And in the Jewish tradition, there is this really interesting story. So first of all, you know, Jews go into the desert, which is also a kind of a holding place. And in the desert, they encounter the divine. But how does the divine appear to them? The divine sort of leads the Jewish people during the nighttime covered in a pillar of fire and in the daytime in a cloud, in a dark cloud. And in order to communicate with the divine, what one must do is enter the dark cloud where the intimacy with the divine can unfold. And so there's the story of Moses first encountering the dark cloud. It was approaching the people and everyone moved back. And Moses was the only one who was able to move into it. And that's part of what signified or or was a sign of his spiritual leadership. So there's this very cool moment in the Torah where the Jews just worshipped the golden calf and Moses was very angry and he smashed the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, you can think of that as like the great separation happened. He goes back up to God and he was like, listen, God, I have done everything you have told me to do and yet I don't even know what it is and the people are not listening to me. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know what I'm speaking about. He, you know, there was this, this beautiful sense of longing for connection connection and intimacy with with God after this really difficult experience that he just lived through. And a really cool thing happens. God answers Moses because God is always in the cloud and Moses says, I want to know your true face. And God says, okay, but you cannot see me and live. So he puts Moses into a cleft in the rock, so like a cave. And then in the Torah it says, God covers Moses with her hand. And so Moses goes into like a holding environment, like a dark place. And then God, the closest God can get to Moses, passes before this dark place. And Moses is allowed to peek through his fingers and see God's backside. And it's beautiful because on one hand, God is saying, you can't see me all at once. You can't behold my glory, my light, because there's something else that needs to happen. Your ego will be annihilated, and there's this way in which God doesn't want that to happen all at once. God is protecting the individuality of Moses, and God is giving a kind of a model for the dark night. You want to know me? You want to know what the divine is? You have to go into a cave. You have to go into the dark. And we see this kind of similar story in the Kabbalistic tradition. So in the Kabbalistic tradition, it is said that God creates the world twice. Because the first time that God creates the world, God is so excited 
that God pours all of her light, all of God's light into the world, and the vessels that God creates to hold this light can't tolerate it and shatter. And so the first world shatters. And then something amazing happens, and God goes into the dark night of the soul. And what literally is spoken about in the Kabbalistic literature is that the process of withdrawal happens. God withdraws God's self from God's center and creates this kind of a womb environment, this holy darkness, this space in which then God creates the second world, the second creation, in which darkness plays a much more important role. And... That aspect, so this is the interesting part, is that what remains then in the world is said to be the divine feminine. So God, in God's transcendence, withdraws away, but there is an aspect of the divine, the feminine aspect that we call the Shekhinah, which literally means the indwelling in the Jewish tradition, and that aspect of God remains That aspect of God is said to have chosen to remain in exile with her children. I love that. And I feel separation like all the time. (laughs) And a lot of like yearning for something more than that. But what helps me so often is to remember that. To remember that anywhere I feel separate, anywhere I feel in exile, that God is necessarily there. That's the function of the divine feminine. That she doesn't abandon her children. She doesn't turn away. She has no orphans. The divine feminine has no orphans. So I really love that story. And um, I'm sorry that I'm all over the place. So, you know, I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm not a scientist. I'm trembling in my knees. Um, But I, I am a scholar of comparative religion, and something really cool happened last year. I kind of wrote an article that I thought five people would read, and like, <laughs> it went globally viral, and kind of put me in a position to, to have to do this. <laughs> now, I want to do this, I want to do this, and Zai and Maurizio were insane enough to, to invite me to do this, but I want to tell you what I think, why I think this happened, and, and what, what the, okay. Ready? This is what happened in 2015. This is not a simulation. This is not a digital recreation. This is Kali on the top of the Empire State Building. Right. Me too. I was like, what the hell? And I was so astonished by this image. I had to know what this was. This was an image by Android Jones, an artist. And this was projected onto the Empire State Building as part of a documentary promotion of a film called Racing Extinction for National Geographic, which spoke about the extinction of species. We are now living in the sixth extinction of species, according to every climate scientist on the planet. And every 20 minutes, apparently, a species goes extinct on this planet. So I saw this on the top of the Empire State Building, and I wrote a little article, and I said, Kali takes New York! Kali takes Manhattan. I don't remember. It was cool. (laughs) And I was so excited. Oh, my God, Kali in New York. And I felt, I was beginning to feel this kind of emergence of an archetype, right? Emergence of an archetype into the collective culture. And, well, only a year later... Something amazing happened in the world and in our country. Donald Trump won the presidency of the United States. And I saw this on the top of the Empire State Building. 
and every part of my body, every part of my being knew that 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 was exactly the same image. Kali is not Donald Trump, but what happened there shook up our society. It kind of like shattered the illusions of like a happy-go-lucky, lovely American society. We saw who we were, and that's the quality of Kali. That's her function. It is to strip us of illusion. She disillusions us, right? It's about the disappointment that we feel. The disappointment that we feel with our misconceptions and with, with the little, little lies we tell ourselves. And so I wrote an article called Kali Takes America, which kind of took America. <laughs> so, and now I feel like this is a stretch, but this is what I feel. And please forgive me if this is not appropriate. But on the plane here, I bought the New York Magazine, and this was on the cover of the New York Magazine, the Doomed Earth Catalog. And in the middle of it, you have this. And, you know, I saw that picture, and for me, it was another Kali on the top of the Empire State Building, except that now I feel like Kali takes the world. And this isn't a kind of an alarmist thing. That's not at all why I want to bring it up. I want to say that this is like the iconography of Kali. What this does to us is what Kali does when we venerate her. She shocks us. She makes us, she makes us no longer able to, to follow the small story about our world and everything being okay and, and, and our small lives and our small hopes. There's this kind of a shattering that happens and that I really felt that and, and I want to read you just a few of the topics, like the little main points in this article. Heat death, the end of food, climate plagues, unbreathable air, perpetual war, permanent economic collapse. I feel the discomfort in the room. I know this isn't, this isn't cool, but just feel it. Poisoned oceans, I could go on, but I think that's good, that's enough. This isn't, lots of people criticize this article, and it's not about this article. It's just about what that does to us, how it shakes us up enough to see through the illusion of, you know, everything is fine. You know, it's like Kali strips us of the false self, and we're kind of going through this global initiation. We're going through a global initiation, and this kind of like false self addicted to capitalist crap and you know we have come to the limits of it we are coming to the limits of it and it's a very painful place and it's a very confusing place and it's a place where really faced with the unknown I mean in all traditional societies there were initiatory processes where like a young person was like thrown into the dark pit and in that pit, usually in the middle of the night, so they didn't know what was happening to them, and in that pit, something had to happen, right? The, the person had to find the inner resources to, to become a mature member of their society, and that's part what I see happening to us, that we're kind of collectively being thrown into this dark pit, into the unknown, where we must mature or perish. And so... This is Chamunda, a really fierce form of Kali who conquers demons, 
Chanda and Munda. And I just thought this was so, like for me, these two images really overlaid one another. And I, I just felt that so deeply. And you see, she, she comes and she bears weapons because she's fierce, because truth is fierce. Right? Because truth is uncomfortable. She's holding up the veil between the worlds and she's drinking the blood of demons and, and, and carrying all these weapons. And it's like, yeah, you have to be annihilated. We have to be annihilated. We want to enter the spiritual life. We have to get stripped down to our bones, right? Look at her. We have to be stripped down to our bones. We have to kind of allow life, allow reality to, to kill off the false self. Right? I don't know very much about that. I'm, I'm trying to shine brighter than I am, but I know the function of it. And the function of it is radical stripping and burning, to burn up the old stories, to burn up the false self, right? To get real, to get real. There's this beautiful quote from Rilke that she reminds me of. She says, death is really your best friend. Because death is the true yay-sayer. She stands on the verge of... Because life says yes and no. And death stands on the verge of the abyss and says only yes. And that aspect of Kali, that aspect of the dark feminine that says yes... Yes, take me. Yes, break me open. Break open my heart. Use me. Use my body. You know, feeding the world with, with, with whatever we've got. That's, that's the core for me of, of, of the dark feminine. That aspect of surrender. That aspect of surrender without which the spiritual life is, is incomplete. And this is what Kali really looks like. So Kali is really cool. And I'm going to try very quickly to just give you the, the core of the myths of Kali. So first of all, the first time we see the dark feminine appearing in the Puranas, it's like the first emanation of Shakti. So Shiva is the, is the divine masculine in the Hindu tradition. And Shakti is the divine feminine. And she incarnates for the first time as Sati. And Sati and Shiva love each other and have this perfect love and they make love and the worlds arise and then this interesting thing happens where Shiva because he's like the lord of death and he has dreadlocks and he hangs out in cemeteries and is really horrifying Sati's father doesn't invite Shiva to like a very important sacrifice and that dishonors the feminine and Sati is this beautiful goddess and so Sati wants to go and speak to her father, but Shiva blocks her way and says, where are you going? We weren't invited to the sacrifice. We're not going to go anywhere. And, and Sati was like, no, 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 no. You do not stand in my way. And suddenly Sati turns into this terrifying, terrifying dark goddess. And Shiva, who's her husband, is, becomes terrified. The Lord of death becomes terrified of Sati, of this dark emanation of her. And he covers his face. And he says, well, who are you and what have you done to my beloved Sati? And Sati says, Shiva, don't you recognize me? I am Sati, and this is my true form. Meaning that she only takes the form of beauty to please Shiva, but that at her core, in her heart, she is dark. And then the core of Kali's myth happens on a battleground. And what's happening is that the gods are fighting for the survival of the world, right? Because their world is threatened, kind of much like our world is threatened right now with extinction. And the gods, in their fabulous, unwise wisdom, gave 
a special power to one of the demons, where with every drop of his blood, a thousand more demons can spring up. And he cannot be conquered by any man or God. And so the only choice that they have got is the goddess. And Durga, this powerful, beautiful goddess in red, rides in on her lion, on her pussy, right, onto the battleground. And she's fierce, and she has all the weapons of war, and she's cutting off heads. But she sees that that's not enough, because every time it appears that she's winning, more demons are arising. And so it appears that the world will be lost. And then suddenly, from within Durga's third eye, rises this deeper aspect of her, Kali, in all of her fierceness. And she's dark, and she's angry, and she's bloody, and she's hungry, and she's ugly. She's all of these things, and angry, and women and gods are not supposed to be, right? And she begins to lick up the blood of these demons before it can hit the ground, and she slays them, and finally, finally she, she saves the world. And everyone is beginning to rejoice. The world has been saved. But Kali, Kali in her, in her grace and her rage and her, and her shakti and her power, she begins to dance. She begins to dance this great dance of destruction. And suddenly it's no longer demons that are threatening the world. It is Kali in her dance that's shaking up the whole universe. The whole universe is wobbling, is trembling. And the gods are terrified again. And they, they don't know what to do. So they go, she, Shiva, go do something about your crazy wife. And Shiva is like, okay. So, so, and this is, this is the, so the story goes. Go do something about your psycho wife. So Shiva, I don't know what to do. So Shiva lays down underneath Kali because there's no containing Kali. And he starts crying out, ma, ma. And so the, the story goes. Kali remembers that she is the mother of creation and stops. But I, I think that there might be another interpretation of this. Because, of course, in the patriarchal culture of India, the only thing that would be reasonable is for, for the man to go calm his, his wife. And that's such a beautiful way in which we... Right? Such an awesome way in which, like, this is what the women are. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Right? But we are terrified of the feminine. We are terrified of the rage and the pain and the sorrow and the beauty and the power of the feminine. We will do anything to make it stop, anything to make it stop. And if the world is shaking, it's her fault and we need to make it stop. I think, I think you see Kali knew exactly when to stop. I think, I think that the world, the way it was, had to tremble, had to shatter, so that the new world can be recreated from her heart, from her heart, a new world where those kinds of demons could no longer, could no longer conquer it. And so, so I think that part of what's happening right now is that our world is being shaken up. And when our world gets shaken up in our spiritual lives, and I think all of us here know what I mean, when we are called to enter the darkness, where, where, you know, Meister Eckhart says, the ground of the soul is dark, right? In that darkness, which is painful and destroying of, of everything we knew and all of our ideas and, and all of our certainties, that's where we can be intimate with God. That's what matures the soul, initiates the soul into intimacy, further intimacy with the divine, and then really allows for that intimacy, right? Like the lovers meet in darkness. 
to unfold. And so, oh, I'll just go through slides so you can feel some of the other aspects of the dark feminine through the world's tradition. This is Tara, the great bodhisattva of compassion. She's always ready. You see her foot is off the lotus. She's always ready to get off her seat of awakening and go assist all suffering beings. She is the blue Tara and in her wrathful aspect, she's a kajati and she's, she's terrifying, right? There's the wrathful and the benevolent aspect of every deity in the Buddhist tradition. And this is the black Madonna. I encountered the Black Madonna when I was a very little girl. I'm Jewish. I come from a very secular family. My beautiful mother, who's going to turn 80 tomorrow, is in the audience with my sister. But I, I've always, I always wanted, I always longed. The first time I heard the word God, I was like, oh, it's mine. I, I need it. And in the communist society where I grew up in the Soviet Union, that wasn't really a thing. But I went to a polar school where there were nuns and priests that would come in in secret and, and, and teach Catholic kids communion. And I was like, please teach me. And um, someone gave me an icon of the Black Madonna. And in the time when the communist world began to fall apart and there was mass chaos and, and people were digging through garbage dumps and, and it, it was very difficult to know what was coming, I felt so overwhelmed. And I felt like my parents couldn't understand me because, you know, adult life and the reality of that. The kids of my age at the time, I felt I couldn't relate to. But I would hold her, I would have her, and I would look at her, and I would feel like she, she knows. She knows. You see, she has scars here. This is Matka Boska Częstochowska, the Our Lady Częstochowa. And she is uh, one of one of hundreds of black Madonnas. Many of them have been, are, are in, in Spain. We have many in Italy. This one I want to speak about just because she's so dear to my heart. And the legend goes, as most legends of the black Madonna goes, that she was painted on a table that was made by Christ, by Luke the Evangelist. And that at some point she was stolen and some, some robbers or Hittite raiders slashed her. And What's interesting is that the, the scars remain, and to me they're actually the core of, of this black Madonna. You see, we have Christ on her lap, but her scars kind of foreshadow the wounds of crucifixion. So it's almost like she has the baby Christ in her lap, but also the crucified Christ in her lap. When Christ is resurrected, there's this cool moment where he meets Thomas, on a path, and Thomas says, Master, how do I know that it's really you? And something really interesting happens. Christ, this is how Thomas, by the way, got the name Doubting Thomas, because he doubted that, that was Christ. And Christ says, okay, put your fingers into my wounds. Put your fingers into my wounds, and you will know me. And so... This kind of has the same qualities. We don't have to turn away from pain and suffering in this world. She's a broken-hearted mother, a tender-hearted mother. And part of, part of what brings us into intimacy, I think, with reality, with ourselves, with God, is our capacity to feel, to feel it all, the ecstasy and agony of life, to feel the wounds of creation, to respond to them, and to hold it all to hold it all. And I want to end with a poem that is really appropriate for this talk. 
Some of you I will hollow out. I will make you a cave. I will carve you so deep the stars will shine in your darkness. You will be a bowl. You will be a cup in the rock collecting rain. I will hollow you with knives. I will not do this to make you clean. I will not do this to make you pure. You are clean already. You are pure already. I will do this because the world needs the hollowness of you. I will do this for the space that you will be. I will do this because you must be large, a passage. People will find their way through you, a bowl. People will eat from you, and their hunger will not weaken them to death. A cup to catch the sacred rain. My daughter, my son, do not cry. Do not be afraid. Nothing you need will be lost. I am shaping you. I am making you ready. Light will flow in your hollowing. You will be filled with light. Your bones will shine. The round open center of you will be radiant. I will call you brilliant one. I will call you daughter, son, who is wide. I will call you transformed. This is from Mother Wisdom Speaks by Christine Lore Weber. And thank you all so much. That was Vera de Chalambert. Up next is an interview with Karen Koskoff, who is a social activist and Goddard alum. She's being interviewed by my friend and colleague, Carla Haas Moskowitz. My name is Karen Elizabeth Koskoff. Koskoff. Russian Jew. There's, there's a few of us running around Vermont. <laughs> My grandfather, Israel Koskoff, came over on the boat, uh -huh. sold fruit from a horse and wagon in New Haven, Connecticut. And then my mother's family grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, owned a bar. And when the steel workers would get off their shifts, they would rotate into her bar, the Mill Hill Cafe. Hmm. And she was one tough lady, lived till she was 103 years old. Wow. Yeah. And nobody swore Nanny's bar. Mm-hmm. And if you knew my grandmother, you would know why. So we have... Wow. So the women always worked in my family. My father went to Pittsburgh. He was a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And he started, actually, the Department of Neurosurgery in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. where he met my mother, who was a nurse. And uh, they fell in love. Mm -hmm. But my father was quite a advocate. He was the first 
doctor in Pittsburgh to hire a black resident, which mm -hmm. back in the day was a big deal because white people didn't want black people touching them back in the day. Well, yeah, that's still the case in many areas. It is years. now, unfortunately, with the Trump administration, it's really become permissible again. But at any rate, fast forward, and we would come to Connecticut for Passover with the Seders, mm -hmm. where my most of my family lived. Mm -hmm. And uh, my uncle Ted, for whom my son is named Theodore David Oskoff, was a lawyer and was involved in the Black Panther trials in Connecticut. So when I was in junior high school, I got to go to the Panther trials. And um, I went to the Panther trials. Bobby Seale actually stayed at Ted's house for quite a while. Wow. And, uh, the first trial I ever saw, the first courtroom I was ever in was the courtroom where Bobby Seale was. The first defendant I ever met was Bobby Seale. Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins, who were on trial for the murder of a cop, which they were innocent, they were later acquitted. Anyway, that was began the interest I had in law. When I got to God, I went to Goddard because. Um, I had found out about Goddard while living in Pittsburgh, where I grew up. I was going to a all-girls school, the Ellis School. When living in Pittsburgh, you either went to a very, very poor public high school or you went to a school like Ellis. There is a book, a phenomenally good book, called An American Childhood, written by Annie Dillard. I think she got the Pulitzer Prize for it. It's an excellent book. I was going to say, book. I've heard of that book. It's a great well, book. It's a beautifully Annie. written book. And it happened, I knew family. Annie Dillard. She actually oh, went she... to Ellis. And it's it's her yeah. autobiography. Let's just say it's a condemnation of the mm -hmm. kind of kids that went there. Um, it's written about the melons and the scafes and the people who ran the mills. And I had had family, my mother's family, who actually had worked in the steel mills, who were part of the Homestead Steel Strikes. So I grew up with this tremendous contrast of family values and the school that I went to. Needless to say, I was quite a problem for that school. I acted out all the time. You know, in seventh and eighth grade, I was burning cigarette holes in my uniform. By the time I was graduating, I had seen the Panther trials, and I was trying to pass out um, Black Panther newspapers and, and the school. Uh, I was getting in a lot of trouble. So I was really not, let's just say, Ellis School material. Mm -hmm. Anyway, by the time I was graduating, I actually was a, um, I had volunteered. Well, before that I had worked at a vet, as a, as a vet tech. Mm -hmm. I had uh, volunteered as a, um, what they now would call a peer group counselor in a drug mm -hmm. and alcohol treatment program and um, was working with kids who had been sent there as part of a probationary status. So I had already been really active and uh, found out about Goddard through one of the people in this program. Came up here, fell in love with Vermont. First person I met there was June Edson, who became my counselor, my academic advisor, my senior study advisor. Mm -hmm. June. She became a friend. And that was 1971. Okay. I started in Goddard in 1972. June 
was remarkable. She had never attended any school her entire life, totally self-taught. And um, I met her and I fell in love with June. I fell in love with the school. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go there. Um, she taught a lot of classes in psychology and in the department of, in, well, there wasn't a department of edu in mm -hmm. education. So I came and I, that's how I got there. Mm -hmm. um, I came back uh, to get my master's after going to law school. I've always been interested in law and psychology and the interplay between the two. So um, when I was at Goddard, I was really interested in psychology. My father, who was a neurosurgeon, uh, was very interested in that and actually taught at the Department of Psychiatry in Pittsburgh and uh, did a lot of work with forensic issues. So I was interested in that. And um, when I got to Goddard, I took a lot of psychology courses. Then I took a chemistry course, actually, with John Freund, who was one of the infamous Chicago 8. Mm -hmm. For those of your listeners who don't know who they are, I met John Freund um, mm -hmm. and was taking a chemistry class. And uh, because I had known Bobby Seal and because of my uncle, who had been involved in the Panther Trials, I wanted to go to Chicago. He was charged with contempt charges that came out of the Chicago 8 trial. Mm -hmm. um, the Chicago, the Chicago 8, during their trial, had a theory of disrupting the courthouse to, and there was a purpose behind it, and that was to recreate the riots that had taken place during the Chicago riots uh, in Chicago. They wanted to give a sense of what was going on. Mm -hmm. And also, there were a lot of contempt charges that came up around Bobby Seal being bound and gagged in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. He was bound and gagged. It was one of the most outrageous things that has ever happened in a courtroom in the United States of America, even fast forward to today. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go, and uh, my parents were a little apprehensive. My Uncle Ted said, let her go. So they did. Of course, I got Goddard credit for this. Mm -hmm. Back in the day when there were no computers, a number of Goddard students went, and our task was to go through the original transcript, read the original transcript of the trial, and find every instance where Judge Hoffman, who was the presiding judge in the Chicago 8 trial, charged a defendant and or a lawyer with contempt of court for disrupting the proceedings. Mm -hmm. So we spent hours poring over the transcript. During the day we went to the trial. So I stayed in the house with a number of the people at the Chicago Eight, this huge house in Oak Park, and uh, then during the day we went to the trial. So I met all of these well-known figures and went to the trial. During the trial, I was vetted by an FBI agent, followed by an FBI agent, followed home late one night by an FBI agent. I wasn't sure at the time it was an FBI agent. I was followed by this guy. Um, ran through some backyards of a very prestigious, well, real fancy suburb of Chicago, it's Oak Park area. Um, anyway, told Bill Kunstler, and he goes, oh yeah, that's the FBI. He said, and I said, well, he, he wants to meet you. And he said, well, invite him to lunch tomorrow. I said, what? He said, Invi invite him to lunch. I said, okay. So the next day I invited this guy to lunch and his eyes lit up. 
and we went to Bill Kunstler and this FBI agent guy and I all went to lunch together and we sat through lunch and the FBI agent was asking Bill Kunstler all these questions and Bill was giving him these answers. What kind and, of questions did the, and, did the FBI agent? Oh, all about trial strategy and all and what oh. they, who they were going to ask as witnesses and all this stuff and I'm listening to Bill answering all these questions and I'm thinking, what is he doing? And so we ate through the whole lunch, and so at the end, Bill gave the FBI agent the tab, and he said, leaned in, and he said, I know you're an FBI agent. Here's the tab. The government can pay for it. Stop harassing Karen. And by the way, everything I just said to you is a bloody lie. And get the hell out of here. And I was like, wow, that was really cool. <laughs> so, got the, of course, the guy never showed up again. It's pretty funny. That is wild. Isn't that wild? He was trying to get information. He was trying to get real, inf real yeah. information, real information from me. And apparently what they do is they try to target the person that they think is the weakest and try to get pump information. Uh, so I, they thought I was the weakest, which kind of was really insulting to me at the time. Anyway, so it was pretty exciting. And of course, after that, I had this conflict about whether I go into law or not. Mm -hmm. um, and pre preceding that, I also had taken an NRT non-resident trimester mm -hmm. in Boston and worked with Pat Griffith. Do you have you heard about her? Yeah. Pat Griffith died a number of years ago. She was very active in the civil rights movement, teacher of Goddard, and I worked in a prison counseling prisoners to get jobs and apartments when they got out in Framingham in Boston. So I was very conflicted about whether to go into law or psychology. After that mm -hmm. experience, I decided to try to apply to law school. So I took a lot of classes in political science. So that's what I did. So it's, it's interesting that, because you, you said that before about wondering to do law or psychology when it feels like, especially, I mean, I think a number of people feel this way, but particularly it's, it's part of Goddard's mantra about interdisciplinarity mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have to give up one for the other. I mean, you could you could live your life and have both inform your life. But I also recognize that if you decide to go into law, that's more a lot more school. Well, if you live long enough, you can do them both. <laughs> where did you go to law school? I went to Antioch School of Law. Okay. Where do you go from Goddard? <laughs> that makes like I great. Where do you go from Goddard? So, that makes the most sense, doesn't it? Well, it was a remarkable place to go at the time because one of the problems after Goddard was you needed a grade point average and I didn't have one so I asked for an interview and they said they didn't give interviews. Antioch said they don't give interviews? Then they, then did. they didn't yeah okay. So I just showed up <laughs> and um, Jean Kahn who became quite a close friend also later on who was the dean one of the deans who said let her in let me talk to her. I should get back to Goddard, though, because there were a couple things I wanted to say about Goddard before that. Two things. One is going to Goddard was really transformative in allowing me to do sort of everything I did afterward. Because when I got to Goddard, after being at Ellis, I was a mess. I had the right values. I knew what I wanted to do, but I was pretty battered, and I was scared and I was from high school and I was insecure. I mean a lot of 17 year old, 18 year old kids are but I didn't know whether I had like the quote-unquote right stuff. This school was a very 
elitist school, but I didn't know what the alternative was. I didn't know if I was smart. I didn't know if I could do anything. I didn't have a very good ego, I mean, a sense of wholeness of who, who you are as a human being. And so when I got to Goddard, I was really thinking, oh God, if I don't make it here, I don't know, what am I going to do? I mean, I had no sense of who I was in the sense that some people know who they are. And so when they said trust the process, I'm like, what does that even mean? What does that look like? And so for me, it was, it became this whole sense of internal process of what does it mean to trust the process? And what it gave me through the teacher's particularly June Edson, but John Freund's, Pat Griffith, um, a lot of other uh, faculty, and also students and staff. They gave me this sense of learning to rely on myself, that I could learn to assess what I needed to know and what I didn't need to know and what felt good and not just assess information, which we all can, but what kind of information was important to me and what wasn't and what was important in life and what wasn't. So, for example, when I was a little kid, I danced, I took ballet. I am five feet 10. I'm never going to be a ballet dancer. You know, I'm too big. But I took a modern dance class the first semester, mm -hmm. which was a really good experience because, not because I was ever gonna be a, a dancer, but because it really relieved stress. It was something that I didn't really realize that I needed, but at the end, when they asked you to write an evaluation of what you learned, that's what it came out of it for me. I didn't realize going into it why I would arbitrarily pick something like that. But it was such a great process of evaluating what we need and what we don't need. So at the end of it, I could let that go. But it was fascinating to each semester have to develop a sense of who we are as a person. That can be very, very scary for a lot of people which is why I think Goddard's always going to be a small place because most people want to be fed and want to regurgitate information. Most people are not seekers. They're not thinkers. They don't want to really, they don't want to really learn and really develop a sense of who they are and, and grasp and struggle with the hard, hard questions. I don't think. There aren't that many of Goddard-like people. I did find them at Antioch. That was a small group. It's a Goddard-like group. In the um, mid to late 70s, I was at the University Without Walls program in Colorado, which was one of the yeah. sister schools. So, I mean, I only know this in retrospect because I didn't feel it as I was doing it uh, until maybe, I don't know, 75% into my career that I found myself in learning environments mm -hmm. that practice just what you talked about. And so I developed this philosophy that I think I still hold, that it's good for everyone and that everyone needs it and everyone actually wants it. Because so many times, because when it came into my life, I was a school principal or I was a teen, mm. you know, I was a program director. I was in a position where a parent would come to me. This was very common. And they would say, and I would be working in some project-based constructivist environment, and they would say, oh, this school is good for this child of mine who is a seeker that is self-directed and does this, and not for my other one who really needs things laid out. And I said, well, it's an interesting thing that you should say because I actually think it's the opposite. Because I think there's a student who may need it the most, because your other child is going to do it no matter what environment they're in. 
and I think if they're exposed, so that's really oh, maybe. my, but I don't, yeah. I don't know, but, but don't that's know. what, where this is going is the question of when you describe what Ellis, Ellis, Ellis yeah, was Ellis like, school. Yeah. yeah, Ellis school was like, and what you were like, how did you even know enough about yourself? I mean, it wasn't just pure random luck. Don't you feel on some level there was something about you that knew that you were one of those people who were seekers, as you said? Well, I knew that what I was, I did know that I was a seeker. I knew that there were things that I really loved. I knew that there were things that I wanted to learn. And I knew that there were things that I didn't, which is what my pattern had always been. So the, the idea that I could go to a mm -hmm. school or I could just do what I wanted was perfect. I was so antagonistic towards authority mm -hmm. at that school. I was raised, oddly enough, to be antagonistic towards authority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my father was certainly antagonistic towards mm -hmm. authority. He was writing letters to the draft boards to keep people out of the military during the Vietnam War. You know, a, a, a traditional school is really not in my future. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it was, it's interesting to reflect back on it because you, when you said, I was always, and then you paused, I filled in the blank with brave because that's what, when you told the story mm -hmm. of what you did, you constructed your own education and you, you did what, I mean, you, you can, the, the language that one has for one's choices after the fact is not necessarily how they would describe it while they're going through it. You were just being you. Like you were saying, I like this experience. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You, you were engaged and you did well. I don't like this experience. I'm not going to do well. And then when you think about that, like what person, see this is because I think about okay. this a lot because I've been in what they're called yeah. alternative ed my whole life. What human being on the planet wants to be forced to learn something that they don't want to learn? Well, like I, I, I can answer that. I was very lucky. I was lucky. I was blessed to have my father and my uncle Ted as remarkable role models. Mm -hmm. I used to tease my Uncle Ted. I have this light bulb recollection of him walking up the stairs of the New Haven Courthouse, which was this grand old courthouse with a marble staircase and those enormous Roman columns during a huge demonstration during the Panther trials. And we drove up in his car this is when I was just about to meet Bobby Seale. We drove up in his car, we got out, we walked up these steps, and there was this sea of protesters, and we got to the top of the steps, and the sea of protesters parted along the steps, and we got to the top of the steps, and I used to tease him, it was like Moses and the parting of the, of the sea. And he got to the top of the stairs, and he raised his left fist, and he screamed, power to the people, and everybody cheered. The entire New Haven Green cheered, and I said, Uncle Teddy, I want to be a lawyer. <laughs> you, know, you have an event like that happen, and you know it, it, it's about lighting a spark. When you have a, an experience like that, I was 13 years old. You know, you never forget that. Yeah. And then, fast forward, you know, I became a lawyer. I did criminal defense work, indigent criminal defense. I have been in more prisons, more jails, more mental health facilities, you know, more mental health, this big old hospitals than any human being, all, all representing people, by the way. You know, and I've dragged people who've been 
you know, passed out in their own vomit up and slapped them to wake them up before they died. I mean, I have seen people hanging, you know, and pulled them down. I have seen, you know, men who've been raped and bleeding out of their anus, you know, and I've dragged them in front of judges and said, get them the hell out of this jail. I mean, I have seen a lot of stuff. And it's that sense of you have to decide where you're going to be in life. What side are you going to be on? You know, um, are you going to be part of the problem or are you going to be part of the solution? And when you see, when you taste that early in life, that sense of what justice tastes like, for me, it was palpable. So it, it focused my anger. It gave me a socially acceptable way to act out. I mean, being a lawyer is great. It was a socially acceptable way to act out. You can get people ordered to do things that they don't want to do. You can really help people that need it. And uh, there was nothing more fulfilling. Now, so some people think, oh my God, who would ever want to do that? And oh, that's so awful. And you know, I'd rather plant beautiful flowers and you know, grow a garden and stuff, which I like to do, obviously. It was something that just struck me so that the sense of social justice and being literally being able to help people, pulling people up, it just meshed at those moments. And to have him do it, and my father, who was very active and working with people, and and it was, I think, because of my love for them and their, their cultivation of me as, like, the next generation, it was something that was expected. In some ways, it was not wanting to disappoint them. But also, during that period, while I was in college at Goddard, um, they were very close with each other and my uncle was had become the president of the American Trial Lawyers Association and they were going around the country speaking on pain and suffering and proof of damages in cases as like a brother team, a lawyer and a doctor mm -hmm. and they needed somebody to go with them. My mother was so sick of hearing about pain and suffering and proof of damages, she didn't want to go. So I would go with them and I'd literally carry their briefcases, <laughs> carry their suitcases. And so I would go to places like Tahoe, you know, I don't know, all the, I don't know. So I went to so many hotels. So, and I would listen to this and what it meant to, to be a lawyer and what it meant yeah. to have for justice. So there was a spark. And so that coupled with this Chicago case was really quite, quite an experience. So my Goddard senior study mm -hmm. was, I was still very interested in the forensic piece mm -hmm. of all of this. So my Goddard senior study was on the abolition of the prison system because I still was very interested in what made people quote-unquote criminals. Mm -hmm. My basis of my senior study, which I have never wavered from these opinions, was simple. Almost all of, of the people that go to prison are poor, disproportionately black, more so now than ever. It's the new Jim Crow. More people are now incarcerated, non-white people, than were slaves which is kind of a shocking statistic. But at any rate, most are drug-related, which is not a criminal issue. It's a medical issue. It's a psychiatric issue. And that should be medicalized. I believe all drugs should be legal, not just marijuana. Thank you. Um, and it should be treated as, as such. Most people are taking drugs because of traumatic events, not because of ADHD. But that's diagnosed as ADHD because if you diagnose things as PTSD, then you, you know, the whole psychiatric community and the whole social community has to deal with problems in a whole different way. 
educational system has to change, etc., etc. But at any rate, and then the other ones, most of them have really serious, serious mental health problems. I represented people who were charged and convicted of murders. I've been very close to those people. Um, I've represented people who ended up getting executed. Uh, fortunately, I was not involved in those that, that part of the proceedings because I really couldn't have handled it. So I just, prisons don't work. Yeah. They're violent, they cause violence, they make people worse. Everybody who's gone into prison has come out worse. Or they have, by some remarkable strength of character, been able to survive outside. So I've advocated for all kinds of other solutions. Um, but at any rate, that was basically my thesis. So I don't believe in the prisons. What is it about the law? Well, there are certain things about the law that I really liked. I, I mean, I love the idea of being able to force people to do things. You <laughs> get a court order, you got to yeah. do something. Also, I liked the process of, I loved being a trial lawyer. Mm -hmm. I loved being in a courtroom. There is something really fun about trying a case. It's the most, it's sort of a love-hate relationship. I mean, there's something really exciting about standing in front of a jury and trying a case. Mm -hmm. it's, there's something really, really spectacular about that that process. and. You know, when I was a kid, I was young, and when I was in Washington, D.C., doing criminal defense work, every night before my cases would start, I'd call my Uncle Ted up. And there were these criminal defendants, these, these guys were charged with burglary and robbery and stuff like that. They were getting first-rate trial litigation experience from, you know, one of the best trial lawyers in the country through me. I was like, oh, man, Uncle Ted, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. And was, you know, I'd go to court, and I won a lot of cases. I mean, I... Did it on my own steam, but certainly I had a lot of help, but it was great information. And then I joined his firm. But before I did that, I, I was making so little money because the cases we took, we got paid by the hour. But you only had, a, for a misdemeanor, you only got 400 cases maximum. Mm -hmm. And for a felony, you only got 1,000. Well, I was putting in a whole lot more time in that. And by that time, I was a single parent with a little boy. And I was making so little money that had I gotten arrested, I would have been eligible for a court-appointed lawyer. <laughs> so, so I became the vice president of an association called the Superior Court Trial Lawyers Association. And the president, myself, the secretary, and the treasurer, we went around the city of Washington, D.C. and asked for help. And there was a bill in city council to raise our rates, which was dead. Because now who wants to raise the rates of court-appointed lawyers? I mean, we weren't exactly... Everybody hated lawyers, and certainly everybody, nobody liked criminal defense lawyers. So we went around to what we called the Uptown Bar, the fancy lawyers. They said, well, gee, it's really, we're really sorry, but we can't help you. We went around to the hill, up on the hill, and our inspector was the head of the Judiciary Committee for D.C., and he said, we can't, we can't help you. Nobody could help us. We went to Marion Barry, who was the, mm -hmm. who was, I loved Marion Barry. You know, loved him or hated him. He said, I can't help you. We went to the D.C. City, City Council. They couldn't help us. No, we went up, no, no one wanted to help us. We went for a year to all these places. Nobody could help us. So finally, we, as a group, had a meeting. Everything was open. We had no membership list. We had dues, apparently, which I never knew about. Mm -hmm. But we, in the lawyer's lounge, one day had a vote, and we decided to strike, which meant that 
we're still going to represent uh -huh. the people we had already been appointed to represent, yeah. but we weren't going to take any more cases. So every day there were 100 adult cases that came into the system. Oh, wow. Every day there were 100 juvenile cases that came in. There was a small public defender's office. They just took up a smattering of cases. They were Yale graduates. They just wanted to do their time for a couple of years and look good and then go off to their corporate ambitions. But we took the vast majority of cases. Mm -hmm. So if you're a criminal defendant and you don't have a lawyer, they can't keep you in jail. Yeah. They can't prosecute. They can't. Prosecutors can't prosecute your cases. So we jammed the system real fast. Wow. So all of a sudden, everything came to a grinding halt. So this was what I refer to as my strike. <laughs> so at any rate, after 10 days and a lot of finagling, we finally got the attention of the powers that be. Mm -hmm. And we quote unquote won our strike. So there was Marion Barry was suddenly interested in seeing us and we got a emergency legislation passed, and we got the bill passed, and we got a, a rate increase, and we quote-unquote won our strike. Mm -hmm. So we thought everything was rosy. But in the meantime, believe it or not, the Federal Trade Commission decided to sue us for conspiracy to boycott and price fix, and that we had coerced the D.C. government into giving us a raise. And I'm like, wait a minute, I have a picket sign here. Isn't this like the First Amendment freedom of speech? There's a bill in city mm -hmm. council. Like, what's, what, what's this all about? Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. The FTC versus the Superior Court Trial Lawyers Association et al. Karen Koskoff, Ralph Parada, Greg Addison. Basically, whether or not we conspired to price fix, mm -hmm. which sounds so friggin' insane, because I'm, you know... I mean, and the whole point of this was... There were these some really crappy lawyers who were like taking an overload of cases, pleading everybody out to make a living. The lawyers that really cared were taking a small amount of cases and litigating them and going broke. Yeah. So the whole idea of the judges was they were appointing all these not so good lawyers, enormous numbers of cases to making the system work on time. But the lawyers who cared were getting screwed because we weren't taking very many cases. We weren't making any money. Mm -hmm. So we wanted a rate increase so that per case we would make more money so that we could have quality mm -hmm. assurances. So anyway, went all the way to the Supreme Court. So I have been in the Supreme Court not as a lawyer, mm -hmm. but as a defendant. So we got there and I felt very much like I was in the Wizard of Oz because going there... It's very strange. They all come out, the, the justices come out exactly when the bell rings and they come out of, of behind these curtains and they sit down and Marshall was there, yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there, Scalia was there. Scalia was not a nice man. He was so nasty. In fact, fast forward, I had a pig named Scalia and the reason <laughs> I named him Scalia was because we slaughtered him and I had no problems. I was afraid I was gonna get attached to the pig so I named him Scalia. It was this white, ugly pig with red eyes. I wasn't at all upset about slaughtering Scalia. It's the only time I was pro-death penalty. I was afraid it was going to be like Wilbur and Charlotte's Web. It wasn't at all. It was therapeutic for me. Anyway, but I haven't had an animal since then. But anyway, even Scalia didn't deserve to die. <laughs> but he was awful. Even the other conservative justices didn't like him. Yeah. He was horrible. Yeah. 
Marshall was wonderful. We, we lost. Mm -hmm. We argued we had political power, not market power. They said we had market power. We had no market power. So anyway, I was under a court order for five years. I was not allowed to disrupt any more courthouses. Did you have to give the raise back? No. Okay. But you couldn't disrupt for a while. I wasn't allowed to. Otherwise, I'd be... Every day I'd get a $100,000 fine, five years in jail or both. Oh. So after the first day, it would have been moved. But anyway, so... Wow. Yeah, so that was my strike. So and after are, that... Are you glad you did it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I was scared at the time. That wasn't about... The wage, was it? It was all about power. It was never about the wage. No. It was, it was about quality representation. If you had 50 cases, mm -hmm. how can you represent people? So eventually, though, you could go back and disrupt then, right? When the time was up. Yeah, so. but I was done. I had a little kid. Mm -hmm. So I moved to Connecticut. Actually, my uncle predicted this was going to go to the Supreme Court. Like 0 .001 cases end up in the mm -hmm. Supreme Court. He goes, this is going. And he was right. So after that, I was done. Yeah. And so I, went, I joined his firm. Then did medical malpractice cases for the most part for eighteen that was, years. That was the implants. Yeah, well, that was more personal. Mm. That was I was doing medical malpractice cases. Mm -hmm. um, did a lot of psychiatric. I did the vast majority of psychiatric cases because, again, I liked the forensic piece. So I did a lot of the cases where people committed suicide while they were under psychiatric care, mm -hmm. where people had been raped or sexually assaulted. Uh, particularly by healthcare providers, did a lot of those cases. I know they sound like there wouldn't be many, but there are. But um, then in 1990, I got the shock of my life. I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So I was 35, and that was not what I was expecting to <laughs> happen. So I ended up with breast implants. I had never, I didn't even know what they, that they existed. I So I didn't check the kind of sutures mm -hmm. they were using. I didn't check the breast implants. Anyway, I took off time to get healthy. Obviously, I'm a mm -hmm. cure because I'm talking to me years, many mm -hmm. years later. But it was certainly one of the shocks of my life. So I um, came back to work after time off. And then this famous Connie Chung report came out. Mm -hmm. This was when they were deciding whether or not to put them on the market in 1990. And at the time... I had a friend named Diane, I still have a friend named Diane Caulfield, who was the founder of a group called Why Me of New England. And she helped me through my year of breast cancer recovery, and she had breast implants. And I found out that the breast implants that she had were really toxic. So Diane was my first breast implant lawsuit plaintiff. And Diane and I also, prior to them being banned by the FDA, went to Washington, D.C., and we testified in front of the FDA. I was the only lawyer who testified at the FDA. And I basically said they were really dangerous, they were toxic in the human body, and this litigation was going to make the Dalcon Shield look like small claims court. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much my testimony. At the time, I didn't know that the kind I had were also toxic. So... After that, I ended up, over the course of a number of years, having mine removed because I also found out that all of them are toxic, including the saline, quote-unquote saline ones. The saline ones are not saline. They are silicone-filled saline. 
shell is still made out of silicone. So I got those out. I was getting sick and when I got them out, I felt better. Oddly enough, that kind of correlation was enough for me to conclude that they are not good. Um, I became very good friends with the man by the name of Pierre Blay, who was the head of the medical devices department for Canada. And I became very good friends with a man who was right under the head of the FDA, whose name is escaping me at the, at the moment, a physician who was probably the one responsible for getting them removed from the market. Anyway, so I was very involved in that litigation for years, and I became the co-chair of the Breast Implant Litigation Group for the American Trialers Association. I spoke to a lot of people in a lot of groups, and I was very active and very open about what happened. Mm -hmm. So Goddard. I love Goddard. You love Goddard. So I went back. What happened was I had my last jury trial, mm -hmm. which was the jury trial of my life, where I represented this kid named Danny Almonte, who had been sexually molested by a psychiatric resident. And that part of the case settled. I sued a guy named Douglas Ingram. Douglas Ingram was the psychoanalytic trainer of the psychiatric resident who molested Denny Almonte. It's very convoluted. Mm -hmm. It was a huge trial. Psychiatric experts who testified from all over the country, like the most influential psychiatrists in the country. It was a battle of the experts. It was in federal court. It was the culmination of like my whole psychiatry legal career. It was the question was confidentiality versus duty to protect. Did this psychoanalytic trainer have a responsibility to tell somebody, and if so, who, that this guy was a pedophile? Or was he required to keep this medical student's secrets secret? Because what happened was is the pedophile told the psychoanalytic trainer that he was a pedophile, that he liked nothing more than kids. But he never told him that he was going to go do anything to anybody specific. So what were this guy's responsibilities or not? It was a very close case. Anyway, I won because my experts said he had a duty to disclose the information. And he went on to molest a bunch of other people too. So I'm writing a book about that now. But that was my last jury trial. After okay. that, I, I, I was done. Yeah. It's like I didn't need to do another trial. My book is autobiographical. My book is about everything. It's like my next senior study. Yeah. A memoir. It's a memoir. And I had a friend who's a creative writing teacher look at it and he said, do you want me to tell you it's great or do you want me to tell you what I really think? I said, both. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, it's a good first draft, but it was actually really lousy. Mm -hmm. It was horrible. It was so bad that I had to start over mm -hmm. because it, it read like a legal brief. I'm a really, really good legal writer. I'm a really, really lousy creative writer because what law school does is it squeezes every bit of creative writing out of you. So I've gone back and taken some creative writing classes. The more I take, the more I realize what a lousy writer I am. It's a very specific kind of writing. Everything's in the past, the past tense, oh. things in action. And, what mm. else did you watch yourself do as you became, watched yourself with intention change your language to something that you felt was more in the realm of 
creative writing? As um, it was allowing myself to express my feelings about things rather than being allowing myself to really speak in first tense mm -hmm. and stay in first tense. And talk about you and, and how you felt about, about me something. and how I really felt. Had you journaled or anything? Had you never? No, no, never, never, never. Mostly because I talk about. I feel like I talk about myself, but really articulating it well. Also, dialogue. What's difficult here is that it's autobiographical, but it's also I have to be very careful because Ingram, who I sued, mm -hmm. could very well want to sue me after this book is done because he hates me. The psychiatrist who I sued, who still thinks he did the right thing by keeping his mouth shut, he's all about ethics and how he feels like he was crucified by me in my office, by you know us going after him for him maintaining confidentiality even though the, what this man did was horrific. So he's going to be really upset. So I have to be very careful. And so, you know, I have to, you know, in terms of how he looks and trying to describe the courtroom, you know, it's just, it's very difficult. And what do you want personally out of this process of writing a memoir? I want to, a couple of things. I want to bring attention to, although a lot has been written about child abuse, I think it's been sensationalized a lot and there's a sort of a voyeuristic sense about it and I don't think there's really a sense of what happens to people particularly as children grow up and particularly in this case to there's very little that's been written about what happens to boys and this is a story about a little boy who gets molested and who ends up this was in the New York Times uh, Frank Bruni came with me to meet the kid who I represented, Denny Almonte. Denny was mildly mentally disabled. He was from the Dominican Republic. He was a cute little kid. And after he was molested repeatedly, going to see a psychiatrist, uh, he, as an adolescent, acted out, had a flashback, thought he saw Damazi, who was the guy who molested him, was out drinking, picked up a two-by-four and whacked somebody over the head thinking it was Damazi and it wasn't, it was some other guy. Ended up getting charged with assault with a deadly weapon. I mean, he hit somebody so hard the guy's brains were on the ground. Ended up incarcerated. So at the time of the trial, he was incarcerated. And I had to try the case with an empty chair sitting there. And when I went to see him, he was in jail, and he was absolutely wild. I mean, he was having flashbacks everywhere. He was, he was out of control. I mean, there was one time I went to see him, and he was in car. I mean, I love this kid. I still love him. He's in. He's back in the Dominican Republic. He was deported. He calls me all the time. I'm still. Um, there's some things that I had to write in this book, like Demazi, the got the pedophile. This is how weird life is. The pedophile guy, Damazi, had been sentenced to prison, served his prison term, violated his probation, disappeared, went to Mexico, was picked up in Mexico, brought back, ended up in the same prison that Denny was in. I got a phone call from the prison telling me this, which was actually really nice. I couldn't believe they actually did that. And I got a phone call like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 
and I knew who represented him. And I didn't call him right away. The, and Damasi was had a really bright red beard. So I knew Denny would know who he was. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't know who Denny was because Denny by this time was, was six foot yeah. one and had muscle on, on muscle, you know. Denny would have killed him if he saw him. And I waited. I didn't call. I waited because part of me wanted Denny to kill him. I hated this guy so much. And then I got home that night and I thought to myself, what the hell have you done? That whole night I couldn't sleep because I thought, you have homicidal ideation. <laughs> You're not going to pay the price. If Denny sees this guy, he's going to kill him. Mm -hmm. What have you done? You know, I am not a morning person. I was at my office at 7 o'clock in the morning. I was so freaked out that it was too late that, that, and that Denny was going to end up charged with homicide of this guy. And it was my fault. So I got to the office early and people were looking at me like, what's Karen doing for so world? Mm -hmm. You know? And I called John Williams, that was this, this lawyer, Demetri's lawyer's name, and I said, John? And he was there early, I guess he was a morning person, like 8 o'clock in the morning. And I said, just wanted to tell you that I found out that Demetri's there and you got to get him out. He goes, oh, thanks for telling me. I'll take care of it. That was so nice of you. I'm like, if you only knew. So he got him out, of course, and he, then he apparently it was administrative segregation because he had had a lot of problems, which pedophiles often do in prison. So there are chapters like that in the book. So yeah. it's very difficult to sit down and write something like that. Yeah. So I went back to Goddard. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back and make sure that what I was writing was consistent academically. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I just wanted to go back to Goddard, yeah. too. So I quit being in the, a partner in this very high-profile, very prestigious law firm, Koskoff, Koskoff & Beter in Connecticut. Nobody leaves that firm. But you know what? I ain't nobody. I mean, I'm different. I, I loved that firm. I loved being with my family. I certainly loved having the history of being in my uncle's firm. But I didn't, I, I don't have any, I'm, I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. So I don't care about awards. I don't care about you know, all that kind of stuff. So I told him I was going to go. What are you going to do? I'm going back to God or I'm going back to Vermont. I'm going back to my roots. So I came back and I got into the MA program. Mm -hmm. And every class that I could take, like my ethics class was on confidentiality versus duty to protect. That was my, mm -hmm. my paper for Steve James. He was my advisor. Okay. Steve is still there. He's the program director for I Counseling and Psych. I love him. He's going to love it. He's going to love this. He'll story. roll his eyes. He's like, oh my God, Karen. So I. So he was your advisor? He was my advisor. Okay. So I took every class that I could take. Mm -hmm. I took a class that I could use the background information for my book. Okay. Because at that point, I wanted to make sure that I was academically grounded in what I was writing. So uh, obviously, the. One I did for abnormal psychology was on pedophilia. Mm -hmm. You know, every one of them mirrored yeah. what was in the book, so that I made sure that what I was writing was academically sound. But actually, with Crystal Owens, yeah, Crystal's I, still there too. I did. She will remember me because she has a black belt in Taekwondo, and I did a paper with her on karate as therapy. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was teaching karate in Vermont, and my karate class came and did a demonstration and the people in my karate class each came forward and said how karate had helped them mm -hmm. which was really nice because I think the youngest was about eight and the oldest at that time 
Maggie was in her 50s or 60s, maybe. Mm -hmm. So it was really quite an... And then yeah. I did it. It was, it was really sweet. So I, you know, of course, incorporate. That was really, really fun. So I did that. So your master's is in psychology? Yeah. And uh, so you, yeah, you did end up doing both. I did end up doing both. So my master's thesis I wrote is on post-traumatic stress disorder mm -hmm. in children who have been sexually molested. Oddly enough, but you know, it helps yeah. me. Yeah, with um, it, it completely makes sense. Well, you know, you could you could always go back again and, and do the MFA program. And, and, <laughs> I brought, and, run out of money. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. So it's that trajectory that I think you were telling me about as I was driving here. It's just about this this way that there's the person attraction to Goddard, the way Goddard holds the person, mm -hmm. but it's also there's a Goddard community of people mm -hmm. who I really do believe have made very significant difference in the world in this social justice realm. And one of the reasons I know that if I was to identify my agenda or my motivation, I don't even know where it will take me because I'm trusting the process, I realize. Which is, <laughs> I think I told you originally that I always say to my advisees, well, in the end, you're trusting yourself. And I understand that there's that, supposed to be that connection because when they trust the process, I want you to trust yourself most importantly, you know. And I think it does cultivate that. So somewhere along the line... I think it's an interconnectedness. I don't think it's an either-or situation. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's an interconnectedness. Because I couldn't have done it without Goddard. I couldn't have done it without June Edson. I mm -hmm. couldn't have done it without Steve James. I couldn't have done it without... And Tracy. I forgot about Tracy Garrett. Tracy Garrett. Tracy was just unbelievable. She's wonderful. You know, I think everyone has a sense of Goddard. You know, whether whether it's faculty or students or staff, everybody has their sense of it. But everyone's part of it, mm -hmm. and everyone has a sort of a has a has a sense of who they are in it. But we all come to it with the same the same sense of um, connection to it. We're all sort of part of that same web mm -hmm. of interconnectedness. And so when we say trust the process, it is personal and it is. We want to learn and learn and get our sense of who we are in it. But I think it's also, there's a real interconnectedness of, of the community. And we define it differently. I think what's good is that we're in a low residency because we get mm -hmm. to see each other face to face and eye to eye and, and get to know who we are. Because those residencies are really, are really critical. Are really critical. What was, the, what was the most important thing that Goddard taught you? How to have confidence in my ability to learn. Mm -hmm. How to how to really how to how to learn how to assess information mm -hmm. how to believe that I know what I know how to know what's good for me Goddard it's just very much in my DNA I just I don't know who I'd be without Goddard. That was Karen Koskoff being interviewed by Carla Haas Moskowitz my co-host on Ethereal, The Possibilities of a Floating Particle of Dust, which airs here every Tuesday from noon to two. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. Mm -hmm.